In today's society, religion seem, it's seen as being pretty negative, isn't it? I don't know um, if you've talked to people, but, um, you know, non-Christians about religion and what they think, but I've been looking on the internet, and there's this website called Twitter, and um, there's a few things that I found people saying. Ben Brooks, he says, Religion is a roadmap to a town that doesn't exist. N. McGovern says, Religion's greatest effect on humanity hasn't been to make it more loving and well-behaved, but to divide it through bitter violent hatred. Dr. Sarah Jensen said, Religion, don't go waving it around in public or shoving it down people's throats. People want to say that our religion is worthless, it's useless. And, and as a result, people often don't want to have anything to do with religion. Religion puts a bad taste in their mouths. When God looks at our church, our small church as Jermoyne Baptist, how do you think God views our religion? What would God say about our actions? What would God think about our speech? Or maybe how we don't speak about God. Or what would God think about how we love each other or maybe how we make things difficult for each other? Do we follow a God-made religion or do we follow a man-made religion? These are tough questions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help us to think about religion today. Please make us to help us to make sure our religion is what you have prescribed. We pray that you would help us to really think about our actions today. Please change our hearts to be more like you. Please help our desires to be your desires. Amen. I forgot that around the right way. We want our God's desires to be our desires, not the other way around. I'll just clarify that. <laughs> but um, the first point as we're looking through James is pure religion liberates the poor. And that's in verse 1, 26 to 27. While the, laws, while the world's got lots to say about religion, God has also got something to say about religion too. And he says there's good religion and there's bad religion. So I'll read out um, the James passage, 26 and 27. If anyone considers himself religion, religious, and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So bad religion... It's mentioned there in verse 26. It's those who cannot keep a tight rein on their tongue. And I think it's kind of interesting here that God actually picks on the tongue. But in human history, we've seen that speech is extremely powerful. Propaganda has been used in the past to provoke people to war, to hate and to kill. And it still happens today. Religious leaders can um, provoke people to hate another group of people. Terrorism is one example of how this plays out. The attack on the World Trade Centre, the London bombings, 
They're just two examples, but there's many more. And even Christian leaders, we need to be careful how we speak about other people so we don't provoke hate. Sometimes we can talk about um, people in such a way that they may not feel like they're welcome in our church. In our church, we've got Christians and non-Christians. While Christians are expected to live a life of obedience and repentance, we do not hold non-Christians to such an account. We want to welcome all kinds of people to the church meetings so they can hear the gospel and see how Christians treat each other. And this means in our church, the immoral man is welcome. The adulterer is welcome. It may sound a bit strange to say that. The unmarried couple who sleep together are welcome. The Hindu is welcome. The Catholic is welcome. The homosexual is welcome. The sex addict is welcome. The pedophile is welcome. The drug addict is welcome. We need to be careful how we speak so we don't think that we hate them. The church is a one, has a wonderful message for them, that God loves them and so should we. We need to be careful of the kind of barriers we, put in, we place in the church. And there is one barrier that cannot be taken away, and that barrier is the gospel. People are welcome to come to our church and find out what the gospel is like and what God's people are like. But to become a Christian, the gospel calls us to repent. And this is why many people reject us. We should let them reject us rather than we reject them. The only people that we are to reject are Christians who don't stop repenting, who won't repent, won't stop. We reject people who don't stop repenting. Okay? But the focus is, in this passage, is I think the idea that we're going to welcome those people who are outside the church. So if you're a non-Christian, you're welcome. You're welcome to come and see and observe our church and to get to know us and to get to know our message. But there's some things in our church that we regard as sacred. So we'll have the Lord's Supper later on. And this is one such thing that only Christians can participate in. So please just observe it. But the main point is you are welcome here and the offer to become a Christian is open to you. Good religions mentioned in verse 27. It's about looking after people such as orphans and widows. Orphans and widows are just one example. They can be anyone who's helpless. These are people who couldn't possibly pay you back. There'll be no material benefit if you help these people. And this is the kind of religion that God likes. And you'll notice that religion should stand out from the rest of the world. And this is because the kind of religion God likes is to keep oneself from being polluted to the world. We're different. I had an Indian neighbour a few years back, and he, um, he was Hindu, and he commented on how Christianity stood out um, in India. It was the only religion that looked beyond itself to care for the poor. It's quite amazing, but our love should make us stand out. If you think about it, how many charities were started by Christians? There's heaps. You see on the slide, there's Anglicare, Compassion, Tear, Baptist World Aid, Barnabas Fund, Leprosy Mission Australia, Australia Red Cross, 
You know, there's heaps, I won't list them more. And there's even more than just those um, icons that you can see up there. But um, I think there's a few things that we need to consider when we give. The first is the impossibility to give to every charity. We just get bombarded by needs, don't we? And every charity just seems to be after our money. But, you know, it's for a good, good cause. They're intending good things. But we shouldn't feel guilty that we can't give to every charity. Even if we gave away as much money as Bill Gates, there'd still be needs in the world. It's just a fact that we need to accept. The second thing I think helps us as we think about um, where we spend our giving is the principle of moral proximity. It basically means that you're more obligated to give to someone or help someone out the closer you are to them. Now, this closeness can be in terms of distance, but it can also be in terms of relationship, such as a family member. For example, if someone's house burned down in our church and they had no insurance, the obligation as a church, would the obligation is on the church that we'll have to pitch in and help. We have an obligation to that person because they are close to us. But if someone's house burnt down in Newcastle, from a church in Newcastle, we wouldn't have such an obligation to give money to help them out. Although it would be generous if we did. And I I think um, it's also helpful to look at Timothy and what he says. There are two verses I want to look at. So in 1 Timothy 5.8, it says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And in 1 Timothy 5.16, just a few verses on, it says, If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let them care for, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that they may care for those who are truly widows. Can you see how the immediate family has an obligation to the widow? And the church is not to be burdened if there is a family member to care for them. Obligation belongs to those who are closest. In 1 Timothy 5.8, to fail this obligation is sin. But when we consider proximity or closeness, it can't cancel out James 2.27, but it might help us think through the kind of priorities that we might have, the kind of obligations that we might have to care for others. And if God's love has been poured out on us, we too will want to pour out our love on other people. And so with the kids' talk, we saw how the king forgave the, the servant or the, his subject. And so that subject should have then forgave the person who owed his, him money. And in most cases, I'd hope that we wouldn't be giving out of our obligation, but we'd be giving out of our love. When we're not generous, it shows that our relationship with God isn't right. James 2.8 calls the royal law, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. This is one of the most important laws that God gives us. When our love for our neighbour is not evident, when we fail to be generous, then it's sort of a diagnostic to show us that our relationship with God is not right. When God looks down at us, what kind of religion does he see? 
Moving on in James, we see our second point, that favouritism treats people according to their social class. In the church, we look after the poor by not showing favouritism. So I'm just going to read out James 2, 1 to 4. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favouritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you, if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here is a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So there's a few words I want to focus on. The idea of shabby clothing, it comes from the idea in the Greek of meaning defiled. Their clothing could be offensively dirty. It may be that it has some kind of offensive odour. If they sat down, they'd possibly leave dirty marks on the pews. Now, I've never seen anyone like that in church, but if there was someone like that, you'd have to look after them properly. But to a lesser extent, it could be someone who's difficult to socialise with. It could be because of their poor English, maybe they have poor body odour, bad breath, or just maybe they don't look nice. Um, the next thing to notice is how the fine per- the, sorry, the person who wears fine clothes gets a fine seat. The rich is treated according to their social status in the world. Likewise, the poor gets no seat, gets told, sit by my feet. Now this idea of by my feet is actually where the word in the Greek for footstool. It's the idea of being subject to someone. So the poor are treated like their social status, like scum. They're treated like a servant. I want you to think about this. What are the different classes of people in our church? Maybe it's better off thinking of them as people groups. What kind of people groups do we have in our church and how do we treat them differently? So I came up with, you know, the poor. There's children. There's people that find it hard to speak in English. There's widows. There's immigrants. There's students. There's retired people. There's stay-at-home mums. There's probably other groups that you might come up with. But I think it's worth thinking through the different kinds of people that we've got in our church, trying to think through how we can make things easier for them. As I thought through the groups, there was a few ideas that I had. It's just through thinking through how can I love these people better. The first one is the immigrants that come and they find English quite hard. Especially when my talk, or Joel's talk, is in English, and we all speak in English. And I think one way we can try and help them out is just to keep on talking to them, keep on trying to help them with their English in just general conversation. But I think also they might find it hard to understand what's going on in a sermon. So you could talk to them and figure out what their understanding is. The second um, group of people that I thought about is people on wheels. So um, I'm glad we've got a ramp now. And it shows that we do care for people on wheels, but I think um, we also need to consider how they get around in the building. And thirdly, there are the children, and they do so well to hang out in church with us. 
And I think it's good to encourage the parents to keep on going. It can be tough. And it could be that you even, if you don't have kids, maybe you want to take hold of one of our kids and say, you know, we'll look after them. (laughs) I'm sure you'd love that. (laughs) And like, I think it's nice having the kids in here. Sometimes they're a little bit loud, but we want to say to them, you know, they're welcome. And we want to make sure that they have a positive experience in the church and feel loved by us. So that's just three ideas that I came up with. And maybe you've got more ideas of how we can love different people in our church more. We need to make sure that we don't show favouritism to a particular group. We don't ignore a particular group. As we continue on in James, we come to our third point. Favouritism is foolish. Okay, James 5, uh, verse 2, 5 to 7 says, Listen, my dear brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom of God, he promised to those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him whom you belong? The Bible should change our perspective on the rich and the poor. When you can see this passage... Who would you say, who's more important? Is it the rich who drag you into the court? Are they more important? Or is it the poor who are rich in faith and will inherit the kingdom of God? When it comes to Christianity, the rich are not so important. In fact, they're the ones who make life more miserable for everyone else. That's why favouring these people is foolish. And you can see what favoritism does. In verse 6, the Bible says, You have insulted the poor. In the Greek, this word means to dishonour. The poor deserve to be treated well because they belong to the kingdom. But favoritism means that they are not given the honour they deserve. Favoritism dishonours those who inherit the kingdom of God. If a rich person came into church, there's a temptation to think of all the possibilities their money could bring. It might just be, it might just start by dreaming about, you know, um, I, I guess you're just tempted, what could this money do to our church? But not only to the church, but to me personally. There's a temptation to make friends with them just so that you can share in their wealth. It might be to ride on their boat or to, you know, visit their cool flash house or ride in their new fancy car. But we need to remember that favoritism is foolish. The rich may be powerful in our eyes, but they are not powerful in God's eyes. God has a heart for the poor, and we need to make sure we do not dishonour the poor by favoritism. If we keep on going in James, verses 8 to 11, James reminds us of the seriousness of any sin. He says, If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. So the law is, love your neighbour as yourself. You break this law as you show favouritism, and you become a lawbreaker. In effect, 
your punishment will be the same as the adulterer or the murderer. This means we need to be serious about our attitude with sin and serious with the sin of favouritism. Sin means we all deserve to be condemned by God. We are all on a level playing field as sinners. There is one class of humanity, and that is of sinners. As we continue reading on in James, we see that there's a solution. And the fifth point in James is the liberation of the law, verses 12 and 13. Speak and act out of those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This passage does not say we are free from the law, but it shows how the law gives freedom. I went to Canberra last year, and I was driving around in someone else's car, it was sort of an unfamiliar place, and I decided I'd go down to the library and park the car and spend a few hours in the library. When I came back, I saw an envelope on the windscreen of the car. I think we've got a slide of that. Okay. wonder if you guys have seen one of those before. Um, inside the envelope was a little slip of paper, and it says, Offence Description 391, Stop in Permit Zone Community Nurse. And I had failed to see the sign, Nurse Parking. It's not that I deliberately broke the law, I just didn't see the sign. I just didn't know it existed. I'd parked in a space reserved for nurses. And this sign, it could have given me the freedom if I'd seen it earlier. And on the parking ticket, there was an instruction. I could either pay the fine or I could go to court. The parking ticket, it contained the instructions to prevent me from getting into further trouble. So I decided to pay the fine. And then once I did, my record was cleared. I was free. The law found in the Bible is sort of like this parking, tick, parking sign. So this, the law, the Bible, it tells us how to live and be free from judgment. And when we sin, the Bible, it tells us how we are to stop, respond, to stop getting into further trouble. And the great news of the Bible is that Jesus takes the fine. In James 2.10, we saw that even one sin makes us a lawbreaker, and we have all sinned and are lawbreakers. We have to pay the fine, which is God's punishment. But there is good news. Jesus offers to pay the fine. But our lives have to change. We cannot expect Jesus to pay the fine and continue to reject him. We must first believe that he is God's king who came to save his people and that he saved us by paying the fine, which meant for him that he died on the cross for us. But secondly, we must repent. This repenting is the idea of constantly turning to follow Jesus, constantly striving to obey his commands, constantly striving to do what the Bible says. No one deserves to take for no one deserves for Jesus to take the punishment for them. And this is the whole idea of mercy. We don't deserve Jesus to take our punishment. This goes for the poor, the rich, for everyone. In this sense, there is no classes when it comes to God. And this is why in church we should see that there's no classes. There's not the rich or the poor. We're all equal. We were all born sinners. The whole world was born sinful. 
and there's nothing we can do to seek God's favour. We didn't become Christians because we were more godly. We didn't become Christians because we were smarter. We didn't become Christians because we were wealthier. We didn't become Christians because we were in a Christian family. We didn't become Christians because we looked after the poor, because we did social justice. Becoming a Christian has nothing to do with these things. The difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is mercy. The Christian has accepted God's offer of mercy. If you believe in Jesus, that he died on the cross for your sins, and you now aim to live with Jesus as your Lord, you seek to obey him by reading his word and finding out what God wants for you, you have accepted God's mercy. And this mercy of what God's done for us, it should be our motivation also. We too need to be merciful to others. It means that we need to treat others better than they deserve. And it means that we don't show favouritism. This message about Jesus, it can be offensive. And the gospel will create barriers. But our speech and our actions should not. True religion looks after the poor and shows no favouritism. When God looks into our church, what does he see? What do you see our love? I wonder, if um, someone from outside came into our church, what would they think? Would they feel welcomed? Would they feel like there were some groups of people that are more special in the church than others? Or would they feel like everyone's treated well? Would they feel like they can sit in any seat in the church? Would they see a generous, loving group of people? When God looks down on the religion of our church, our actions and our practices, does he see true religion? Or does he see the kind of religion he deserves, he desires? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the mercy you have shown us. We thank you that Jesus' mercy involved dying on a cross for us. Please help our speech and our actions to be what you desire. Please prevent us from showing favouritism and help us have a heart for the poor and marginalised. When you look at our church, please transform our religion to be what you desire. Amen.